It's TechBiter Worldwide with Bill Flynn. The latest on programs and policies, helpful hints, and a bit of occasional nonsense. All in more or less plain English. Podcast number 805 for the 12th of August, 2022. This week, smartwatches aren't exactly new because they've been around in one form or another since 2004. Apple's introduction of a smartwatch in 2015 gave the market a kickstart, but only about one-fifth of U.S. adults currently own one. Women are more likely to have a smartwatch than men are. In short circuits, many cryptocurrencies have lost significant value in the past several months, but they still have worth. The U.S. Federal Bureau of Investigation says 244 investors lost nearly $43 million worth of cryptocurrency in the past six months. The scam has been traced back to a fraudulent app. Most Wi-Fi routers can transmit signals in the 2.4 gigahertz range and the 5 gigahertz range. Some of the newer devices can also communicate in the 60 gigahertz range. Although channel selection is largely automatic in the higher frequency bands, it is fully manual in the 2.4 gigahertz range. Selecting the wrong channel there can reduce your link speeds and those of your neighbors. And 20 years ago, only on the website, I was excited about bargain prices for compact flash memory cards that were used by some camera manufacturers. They have virtually disappeared now in favor of memory cards that are physically smaller. 20 years ago, CF cards were the primary choice, and 2002's bargain prices are laughable now. Is there a smartwatch on your wrist yet? If not, one may be in your future. These devices are nowhere near as common as smartphones, but usage is increasing. I recently joined the group of owners. As of 2021, 97% of Americans owned a mobile phone of some sort, and 85% of Americans owned a smartphone. That's information from the Pew Research Center. By comparison, about 21% of U.S. adults own smartwatches or fitness trackers as of 2020. Women are somewhat more likely to own one of the devices than men, 25% to 18%. Mordor Intelligence says smartwatches are gaining significant market share because manufacturers such as Apple and Fitbit have added health monitoring features. The report also notes that COVID has pushed consumers toward connected monitoring devices. The report notes that most smartwatches are designed to be paired with smartphones using Bluetooth so the devices can share the phone's notifications. Problems exist because smartwatches can usually be paired only with a limited number of compatible smartphones. Apple's watches, for example, can be paired only with Apple's phones, version 6 and later. Samsung's watches can be paired with Samsung's phones, but also with most other Android devices. Statista reports that Apple has the largest market share, but that share is declining from nearly 33% in 2020 to about 30% now. Huawei dropped from second place to third. Samsung is now in second place with about 10% of the market. Others include iMu, Fitbit, Fossil, Noise Garment, and Amazfit. But the All Others category is at 27% and increasing. Wearing a watch, 
any watch is something that I have not done for a very long time. Working full-time in radio gives one an enhanced sense of time, and I seem to have acquired a double dose of that. If anybody asked me what time it was, day or night, in the late 1960s through about the mid-1980s, I could tell them and usually be within about three minutes. That capability has declined in recent years. In some cases, I'm still accurate within five minutes or so, much of the time. But sometimes I'm off by several hours, particularly overnight. So I thought a watch might be a good idea. But I had another reason for deciding that a smartwatch would be a good investment. I'll get to that in just a moment. Because I own an Android smartphone and had no desire to adopt Apple's ecosystem, there was no reason for me to even consider an Apple watch. After looking at Fitbit, Garmin, and some of the other off-brand watches, I selected a Samsung Galaxy watch. Overall, I'm pretty pleased with how it works. Because the watch connects to my phone, I can use the smart lock function that keeps the phone unlocked for up to four hours while it's connected to the watch. This is a handy feature because it actually works. Android's smart lock feature is supposed to keep the phone unlocked when it's at home using the trusted place option, but that feature fails about as often as it succeeds. I also tried the smart lock option to keep the phone unlocked when it's connected to the computer. That works, but the Bluetooth connection doesn't work when I leave the room the computer is in and the phone locks again. Because the phone and the watch go with me wherever I go, I now get a full four hours during which I don't have to repeatedly unlock the phone. The initial setup was uncommonly easy. After charging the watch's battery and loading the Samsung Wear app on the phone, I started the watch and followed the on-screen instructions as it took care of pairing itself with the phone. The watch face can be modified to look like an analog watch or a digital watch. I actually prefer analog displays, but the digital displays allow for the addition of more information, such as remaining battery life, the date, my heart rate, and the outdoor temperature. In all, there's a choice of more than 20 bits of information and four spots on the watch's face where I can put them. One of my primary reasons for buying a smartwatch is the ability to monitor my heart rate. Options are on demand every 10 minutes or continuously. The continuous option seemed like a good idea, but it's too big a drain on the battery. So I chose the 10-minute interval setting. The watch's settings can be modified using the watch itself, or perhaps more easily on the smartphone it's connected to. I found the phone-based settings easier to manipulate, but I have made some changes directly on the watch as I've become more familiar with how it works. The watch has a handy Find My Phone function, and the Samsung app on the phone has an equally handy Find My Watch feature. Although I haven't misplaced my phone recently, I have done so in the past, then I had to have Phyllis call the phone or use Skype to call it. The number of options, features, and settings on the watch seemed overwhelming. There is a two-page quick start guide that's sufficient to get the watch started, but that's about all. Digging into the feature set requires spending some time with an 81-page manual provided as a download from Samsung's website. Admittedly, I'm a little late to this party. Apple introduced their first smartwatch in 2015, and a software developer I was working with back then was among the very first to own one. Seven years later, I have one, although not an Apple watch, 
Neither of us was exactly near the leading edge, though. Microsoft released what is generally considered to be the first true smartwatch in 2004. That's right, almost 20 years ago. The Microsoft Spot, by the way, Spot stands for Smart Personal Object Technology. The Spot received information such as weather, news, and stock updates, but not via Wi-Fi or Bluetooth. Instead, the Spot used FM radio. Even earlier, Seiko offered the Data 2000 starting in 1983. It could store two memos, each with no more than 1,000 characters. The RC-1000 came out a year later in 1984 and provided a connection to desktop computers. The watch I'm wearing today can store a lot more than 2,000 characters. It has 4 gigabytes of memory, far more than many desktop computers had in the 1990s. I can also talk to the watch and have it record reminders or other information. There's a keyboard of sorts, but not for my fingers. And talking into the watch makes me feel just a little too much like Dick Tracy. If you buy a smartwatch, set aside some time to read the manual and to experiment with the settings. It seems that the days are gone when it was possible to just buy a new piece of hardware or software and use it until there was a problem. I usually download the quick setup information and the manual either before I buy something or while I'm waiting for it to arrive. A quick read-through is usually sufficient for making sense of something initially, but taking the time for an in-depth review makes using anything new much more enjoyable in the long term. Happy watching! If you find these podcasts useful, and I hope you do, might you consider a donation? There are no ads here, and support from listeners is the sole source of income. It's easy. Just visit the website and click the Donate button near the top of any page. You can make a one-time donation or schedule a repeating donation every month. I thank you. And so does the cat. U.S. Federal Bureau of Investigation says 244 investors lost nearly $43 million worth of cryptocurrency in the past six months. The scam has been traced back to a fraudulent app. A warning from the FBI says that cyber criminals purporting to be a legitimate U.S. financial institution defrauded at least 28 victims of approximately $3.7 million. That happened during a six-month period ending in May. The crypto creeps convinced victims to download an app that used the name and the logo of a U.S. financial institution that the FBI did not identify. When some of the victims attempted to withdraw funds using the app, they received an email stating they had to pay taxes on their investment before they could make withdrawals. After paying the supposed tax, the victims remained unable to withdraw their funds. The FBI says investors should follow what appear to be common-sense precautions, specifically these three. 
be wary of unsolicited requests to download investment applications, especially from individuals you have not met in person or whose identity you have not verified. Take steps to verify an individual's identity before providing them with personal information or relying on their investment advice. Second, verify an app is legitimate before downloading it by confirming the company offering the app actually exists, identifying whether the company or app has a website, and ensuring any financial disclosures or documents are tailored to the app's purpose and the proposed financial activity. And third, treat applications with limited or broken functionality with skepticism. As I said, pretty much common sense stuff there. The agency's recommendations for financial institutions are also pretty basic common-sense security measures. First, proactively warn customers about this activity and provide steps customers can take to report it. Second, inform customers as to whether the financial institution offers cryptocurrency investment services or any other related services and the methods to identify legitimate communications from the institution to customers. Third, inform customers whether the financial institution has a mobile application. And fourth, periodically conduct online searches for your company's name, logo, or other information to determine if they're associated with any fraudulent or unauthorized activity. The full FBI warning and details of the crypto scams are available on the agency's website. You'll find a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. Most routers can transmit signals in the 2.4 GHz range and the 5 GHz range. Some of the newer devices can also communicate in the 60 GHz range. Although channel selection is largely automatic in the higher frequency bands, it's fully manual down in the 2.4 GHz range. When you set up a 2.4 GHz band router, it looks like you have a choice of 11 channels. In fact, you should limit the choice to one of three. 1, 6, or 11. There are simply too many channels. A signal on channel 6 intrudes into channels 4 and 7, and partly into channels 3 and 8. A signal on channel 1 intrudes into channels 2 and 3. And a signal on channel 11 intrudes into channels 9 and 10. That interference is what you want to avoid. Applications are available for Android devices that show which channels are occupied where you are. The display might show that all signals in your neighborhood are on channels 1, 6, and 11. The intuitive response would be, well, those channels are busy, so I should use one of the other channels. Not so. Check the TechBiter Worldwide website and you'll see an example where there are signals on channels 1 and 2. My signal is on channel 6. A signal centered on channel 1 extends into channels 2 and 3. My signal extends downward from channel 6 through channels 5 and 4. No conflict. But a Wi-Fi channel isn't a hose. A signal may be centered on a given frequency, but it extends well beyond that frequency. A signal centered on channel 2 extends upward to channel 4, where it can cause some conflict with signals on channel 6. 
So the obvious question is, if cross-channel interference is bad and we should use one of only three channels, what about on-channel interference? In an ideal world, every signal would have its own channel. That's not possible, of course, so the Wi-Fi protocols have measures for dealing with signal collisions. The problem is that using one of the channels between the preferred channels generates interference on two primary channels, so there are more collisions to work around. The only channels that don't overlap another channel are channels 1, 6, and 11, so those are the only channels that should be used by devices in the 2.4 GHz range. Fortunately, physical separation is sufficient in residential neighborhoods so that both on-channel and off-channel signals are too weak to cause more than minor interference if they cause any problem at all. A screenshot you'll see on the TechBiter Worldwide website shows that interfering signals from a user on channel 2 and another user on channel 10 are down more than 90 decibel milliwatts, so they cause literally no problem. The good news is that this is going to be much less important as people move to the 5 GHz band. Wi-Fi routers that operate in the 5 GHz band usually have built-in intelligence to select the best operating channel. Eventually, the 5 GHz band will fill up too, but technology designed for other bands should eliminate all of the cross-channel problems. And by the way, this is also a good reason why, when you have a choice, it's always better to use a wired connection. There are no channels to check when you want to read 20 years ago on the TechBiter Worldwide website. This week, let's look back at prices for digital camera memory cards. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn. There's more on the website, techbiter.com, and if you have a question or a comment, use the contact link you'll find there. Stop by again next week for another session. <music> <laughs>